Welcome in Jesus' name. I'm glad that you're here and glad to be a part of this journey with you. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'd love to get a chance to meet you at some point in time if we haven't done that yet. Uh, for now, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and open to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And as you get there, let me just say a, a quick word about next week as we gather for Easter Sunday. Uh, right now, uh, there's actually a bit of room. Of course, we sent like 100 kids downstairs, but there's a bit of room to kind of move around a little bit. Um, probably next week, uh, things will be a little tighter. So can I just encourage you, if you're a regular part of our 8.30 and, our, I'm sorry, our 10.30, but you're thinking 8.30 might be fun to try, next week would be a great week to try that out. <laughs> Um, I'm just warning you ahead of time, if you don't do that, parking could be a bit challenging, and so if you are physically capable of walking, can I encourage you to find a spot further away and walk and leave spots a little closer for those who are not as physically capable of walking. Um, because we're a younger church, it could be that everybody's going to go see their family over uh, Easter weekend and it'll be quiet, but probably not. So anyway, um, we'd love to uh, have you come earlier if you're capable of doing that. Um, so we're wrapping up next week, actually, in a slightly different kind of twist, this Lenten series that we've been in called Encountering God in Dark Places. And this has been a difficult journey. Uh, we've been kind of walking through some of the dark places of our lives, some of the difficult things that we, uh, we come up against uh, as those who are following Jesus, as those who are uh, wondering about following Jesus. There's this place of darkness that pushes us back. And uh, we've basically been saying it doesn't need to push us back. We can, uh, we can encounter God even in the midst of darkness. And today we're going to do that in uh, uh, maybe the darkest of the dark places, encountering God in the midst of death. W what happens in the midst of that darkest of place that allows us to uh, experience Jesus. So I've shown you uh, visuals along the way to kind of give you a, a framework for where we're going. And so uh, we're gonna start with this first visual today, the visual of a graveyard. And as you look at that, uh, let me tell you uh, first a personal story and then uh, someone else's story along the way. Um, about uh, almost exactly two years ago, um, if you remember, we were still uh, meeting down in what is now the student center, but what at that point was the worship center that we were uh, using through the back end of COVID. Um, we were still on uh, four services a weekend. Some of you remember the joy of that. The worship leader started to twitch a little bit, but uh, yeah, we did. Uh, we were doing two on Saturday and two on Sunday, and so um, uh, on Sunday morning after the 10:30, I just preached the fourth time through uh, the passion account of Jesus uh, from the Gospel of Matthew as Jesus was going to the cross and enduring the cross, so uh, a series of heavy sermons. And um, as I was in the back having a conversation at the end of that 1030, um, my wife came in, she wasn't a part of that service, but she came in and asked me if she could talk to me outside, which is never a good sign when your <laughs> wife asks you to have a conversation with you outside. Um, but as we slipped out the back, she told me that my dad, uh, at 73, had suddenly passed away of a massive heart attack that morning. And um, I, I've, man, and I had been married for 23 years at the time, and it's the only time in 23 years I called her a liar. <laughs> I, I didn't believe it. My dad, if you've ever, uh, if you had ever met him, uh, he's a big guy, and his personality was larger than his very large body, and. Um, it didn't seem possible that somebody that had that much life would no longer have life. 
Um, if you know our journey, um, we had walked for almost a 10-year period, nine and a half years with my mom through an extended battle with cancer. And so my experience of people close to me dying was uh, that long journey with ample opportunity to say goodbye. And so when she told me that, I just couldn't believe. And, and, and there were lots of things conflicted in my heart in that moment. Any of you who have experienced the death of someone close to you, you know those feelings, those, that sense of, I'm not even sure what I feel right now and how I feel about God right now and how I feel about all the stuff that I just said four times in a row over the course of this weekend. With that story in mind, I want to tell you a different story. Uh, that's not my personal story. I'm going to show you first an image. This is an image that was produced by uh, one of our elders, Mike Duggar. And it was part of a larger project, um, a book by Dr. Lydia Dugdale called The Lost Art of Dying. Some of you remember when Dr. Dugdale came and presented to us in a culture and theology uh, weekend around the idea of death and dying and how we encounter God in the midst of that. This image is of a man that she calls Mr. Turner, an older man who had all kinds of health issues. And over the course of one evening shift, Mr. Turner died three different times. He first died, and uh, Dr. Dugdale describes the way with um, professionalism and efficiency um, and all of the stuff that you would expect out of the well-trained medical profession here in the United States, they brought Mr. Turner back to life. And a few hours later, Mr. Turner died again. And she again describes them bringing Mr. Turner back to life. And finally, the third time that he died that evening, they were not able to resuscitate him. But she talks about the conversation with the family in the midst of this journey and how as the family came together, she was able to say to them, uh, he's not going to make it. Like, it, he, he will never be able to have any kind of quality of life. But there's not a do not resuscitate order, and so we, we have to continue to do this. What's your desire? And hauntingly, they said, we're followers of Jesus, and so we want you to keep bringing him back to life as many times as you can just to give Jesus enough chance to be able to heal him. So I don't know how you feel about that. I, f I felt a bunch of conflicted things as it relates to that. But at the very least, could we agree that as followers of Jesus, our relationship with death is very complex? It's tricky. Dr. Dugdale wrote in her book this quote, those of us in the West today will fail to die well if we refuse to acknowledge that we are finite creatures. The art of dying is wrapped up in the art of living. How do we live as finite creatures? Many of you began this journey with us weeks ago by on a Wednesday night kneeling up here at an altar and having some grisly stuff placed on your forehead with the words, you've come from dust and you'll return to dust. A message that there's never a good time to speak. 
We are finite creatures. And by finite, I don't just mean mortal. Certainly, all of us, unless Jesus returns before then, will have bodies that are breaking down. Uh, Some of us feel that more than others. At four o'clock this morning, my knees felt it. I don't know about you. There, There are certain times that we can tell our bodies are breaking down, but our finiteness is not just that we will one day die. It's that you need to sleep. You need to eat. There are certain things that you must do in order to keep going. You are a needy person. You need a bunch of stuff. And God has no needs. How do we balance that? How do we wrestle with our finitude before an eternal and perfect, needless God who has everything you could possibly need? That's the question I want us to wrestle with today. And I want us to wrestle with it from an unlikely place. If you were familiar when I, opened, I asked you to open to John chapter 11, uh, you may be familiar with the story that we're about to look at. Uh, it's a famous story of actually life that comes out of death. Strange place to look at the idea of death. However, we're not going to focus a lot on the life part of it this week. There's next week for that. This week, I want to focus on the fact that this story, I think more than any other, give us a window into how Jesus views death. And I want us to see what Jesus has to say about death and how that impacts us. So I'm going to ask you to listen. Uh, David's going to come and read for us John chapter 11, 1 to 44. This is an extended passage, and so uh, you're welcome to follow along if you desire, but I'd encourage you just to listen and allow this story to come alive for you. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle, called the disciple whom Jesus loved, wrote about the story of Jesus at a funeral. Listen as though it was the first time you heard the story, will you? Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus, of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, (laughs) the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend, Lazarus, has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, 
And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die." Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, "Uh, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died 
came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, David. Would you pray with me? Jesus, this is your truth, your word to us today. And so would you guide us into your truth, shape us, and develop in us the hearts that you desire for us to have? Would you guard my words that they would come from you alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, that the words that come from your spirit would remain? God, speak to us that we would be changed increasingly into the likeness of Jesus. So do this work, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So it's a story that ends in life, but I want us to look at the window into death that it gives to us. And so I want to look first at the timing of death. Jesus has an interesting sense of timing in this story. I think it's worth us looking at. Then I want to look at the offense that death is and how uh, God the Father and Jesus the Son feel about that. And then finally, the question that we've been asking throughout the series, how do we encounter God in the midst of this, particularly this, this most, uh, the, the, the darkest of all of the dark places? So the timing of death, the offense of death and encountering God. Uh, one way to look at the first 16 verses of this story is that uh, that was the time where Jesus was confused about his timing, right? Um, because he, he's talking to the disciples and he says, don't worry guys, this isn't going to end in death. And then it's almost like he's saying, oops, we didn't get there quite in time. Uh, wh- what happened? What, what's, what's going on here? Do you ever feel like Jesus is late? Because I think a lot of us feel like that. When my dad died, one of the things that was so maddening to me was that a couple years before, our, um, I'll just call it a complex relationship, um, our complex relationship was at a place where it didn't seem like it was really going anywhere. It kind of been the same for a really long time. But by the time that he died, things were moving in a way that was very different than any, at any other time in my 45 years of life, and I was encouraged about where things were going, and my projection is that two years down the line, things maybe would have been put together in a way that was a lot neater and cleaner and better than it was right then, and yet it was a massive heart attack thousands of miles away. I had no opportunity to say anything or do anything. The timing of God didn't make any sense to me. But if you've ever had a loved one die, no matter what the situation, there's never a good time for death. It's always inconvenient. It's always frustrating. I told you my mom had a nine and a half year journey. We had plenty of time to say everything that needed to be said. And months afterwards, I was coming back to, oh, I wish I would have said. I, I, I wish I could. You probably know how that journey is. What do we do with the timing of Jesus? What happens when we approach this this point of death? J.C. Ryle, in his essay on sickness, talks about both sickness and death. Listen to the way that he says it. 
Vague, indefinite, and indistinct religion may do very well in the time of health. It will never do in the day of sickness. A mere formal, perfunctory church membership may carry a man through the sunshine of youth and prosperity. It will break down entirely when death is in sight. Nothing will do then but real heart union with Christ. What Ryle's saying is uh, when things are good, um, we uh, live as though things are good. And when we get hit with suffering and sickness and death, we're often not prepared for it because things had been good right up until then. But that perfunctory church membership, that kind of connection to Jesus at a shallow level won't carry us through the most difficult things of life. James, in his book, says that we should consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. Because that, those trials, they produce good things in us. If you were reading along with your heart and your mind when we read Romans chapter 5, there was a kind of a grinding of gears moment in there. Maybe you noticed that, that, that first sense of just rejoicing and the hope that we have because of Jesus. And then he's just going on. And he said, and, and also rejoice in your sufferings. And if you were reading along, you probably thought, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> Do I really want to say this? Because he says it's in our sufferings that perseverance is produced. And in the midst of perseverance, we have hope that does not disappoint us because we gain access to the Spirit in a new and in a unique way. That's what Ryle's saying, is that we get to that place and what we need is a deeper connection with God. And when suffering shows up, even though we never would have chosen it, God draws us deeper. For some of you, you know that idea of Jesus being late. It may not be with death. It may be with job loss or sickness or a relational conflict or something else that's happening in your life and you feel this tension. You feel like Jesus needs to show up and he's not showing up and it's really, really frustrating. But for now, let me simply say this. Death never shows up at the right time. Remember that because that's going to be important in just a little bit. Death never shows up at the right time. But Jesus, as he's encountering death, um, has a very unique reaction. So I want to take you first to his interaction, first with Martha. So as Jesus shows up, um, his confrontation with death first happens through Martha. So Mary stays back behind. Uh, she's grieving in a deeper way. But um, Martha comes out to meet him. They just are responding differently to grief, as all of us do respond differently to grief. Martha says to Jesus, this is verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, do you see her trying to like get in there? Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. So Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And she says, that's not what I wanted. So she responds, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. Martha, like a lot of us, knows the right answer. This is a good religious answer that she would be very willing to post on Instagram but doesn't really believe, right? Like, I know, I know that's what's coming. I know. Uh, so many of us, when we hit suffering, particularly if you have spent a lot of time in the scriptures or a lot of time in the church, when we hit suffering, immediately what comes to our mind is Romans 8, 28. You may know the reference or you may not, but you probably know the verse. 
God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And immediately we hit suffering and we think, oh, don't worry, God works everything together. And we post it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's great. I don't really believe that right now, right? In the midst of suffering, in the midst of wrestling, I I don't feel that, but I know that it's true. That's what happens with Martha. She's speaking what is actually true, but she's not really believing it. I love the way Jesus responds to her. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I want you to note that Jesus is trying to bring Martha from the future tense back to the present tense. He does not say, I will be the resurrection and the life. Don't worry, Martha. Someday I will be the resurrection and the life for Lazarus and for you too, by the way. He says, I am, present tense, the resurrection and the life. There's an opportunity to enter in to the fullness of the kingdom. Even right now, Martha, do you believe this? So there's this wrestling that's happening. Jesus is going to encounter Mary as well, and they're going to have a different encounter. We have time to dig into all the details this morning. Um, and then uh, there's this phrase that John uses. Um, you're going to find it first in uh, verse 33. It says this, When Jesus saw her weeping, speaking of Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. If you have, uh, depending on your translation, there may be a footnote there by deeply moved, and the, you'll see the alternative translation of that Greek word is indignant. There's, there's this phrase that's used there, it's used again in verse 38, where Jesus is deeply moved. Um, and that idea is one that that translation, deeply moved, doesn't really get at. Um, there's a theologian, believe it or not, I'm not making this up, his name is, let me, let me read it to make sure I'm saying it right, his, his name is Rudolf Schnackenberger. Now, isn't that a great name? Like, I'd like to meet a theologian named Rudolf Schnackenberger. That's, that's fabulous. Schnackenberger, I can't even quote him without giggling a little bit. Um, Schnackenberger says this about that phrase. That, that word that's translated deeply moved indicates an outburst of anger and any attempt to reinterpret in terms of an internal emotional upset caused by grief, pain, or sympathy is illegitimate. Now, I don't know if you speak fluent theologian, but that's a theologian really worked up. Like, he's, he's mad, he said that, and then he pushed his glasses back up again. Uh, this, is, uh, this, is, uh, this is frustration, right? He's, he's saying, I, I know that your English translation says deeply moved, but Schnackenberger's making the case that Jesus is suddenly really angry. Something happened. There's this, uh, this breaking point that happens in Jesus. He's all of a sudden really worked up. Why? Because it wasn't supposed to be like this. And Jesus, seeing into death, is saying, it's not supposed to be like this. Timothy George, another theologian with not as cool of a name as Schnackenberger, um, tells the story of being on the Harvard campus and listening to Elizabeth Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Some of you know that name. She wrote uh, the book on death and dying, which was a best-selling book. But what you're probably familiar with is the stages of grief, which she uh, walked through. And he was listening to a lecture of uh, Kubler-Ross on the stages of grief. And, and he talks about how she... Um, 
normalized and domesticated death in our culture. He says she carefully and clinically explained the various stages of grief related to death. She taught us to consider all of this in a calm and therapeutic manner. And no doubt many people found solace in such constructs. So in this way of seeing things, death becomes a normal, controllable, and manageable part of human life. This perspective fits comfortably into the positivist, materialist, and secularist presuppositions of our time. So he's listening to Kubler-Ross talk, and he's saying, for a lot of people, this probably makes them feel good, because we're standing outside of death, and we're recognizing death is just an inevitable reality, and so let's just look at this as it is, let's just work our way through it. But then George says this, I'm going to put this one on the screen. The New Testament, on the other hand, presents death as a violent intrusion, an illicit disruption, a trespasser, a foe, or an enemy to be overcome. Jesus doesn't say just journey through the stages of grief. Jesus says it's not supposed to be like this. See, we can come at death in the reality of the culture of death that we live in, For all of us, we've been presented with death since we were young. It's a normal part of life. But Jesus, with the Father at creation, remembers that it was never supposed to be like this. This is not the way that God made it. And so his response is not being deeply moved internally. His response is to have an outburst of anger, a level of frustration that says, it's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to work this way. And then you have that verse that you probably all memorized as the first verse that you memorized because um, it was the simplest one. Remember Jesus wept, that one? Um, The shortest verse in the English Bible. Um, Most of you memorized it in order to get like a star in Sunday school or something. Um, That idea, Jesus wept, is sandwiched between the two different times that John uses that phrase, deeply moved. Meaning, when Jesus wept, it was probably not a single tear that was dropping down his cheek. It was probably a a seizing and seething kind of weeping. Dale Bruner, in his commentary on John, says it's best translated, Jesus bawled. Jesus, with anger and frustration and hot tears, was saying, it's not supposed to be like this. When we approach death, As followers of Jesus, we should not simply approach death as inevitable. It certainly is that. But we should also approach death as not what God intended. When Jesus weeps, remember, he's weeping knowing, he's already told his disciples that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. When he weeps, he weeps giving us permission to also weep and be angry at the idea that death has intruded into life. It's not supposed to be like this. So how do we encounter him? Because if it is that kind of reality, that death has intruded upon to life and it's not supposed to be like this, then how do we meet him in the midst of death? Jesus deeply moved again, this is verse uh, 38, came to the tomb, it was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, 
the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Some of you know, you've maybe heard me say before, uh, this is the one verse that I really think that we should have kept in the King James, because it literally says, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Lord, he stinketh. Why does it say that? Well, it says that because the King James can't just say stinks. It has to say stinketh because, you know, it's got to be formal. And, but, but she says that because four days is a significant number in Hebrew culture because they believe the soul left the body after two days. So this is literally just a body that is decaying in the tomb. Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> like, we don't want to open that sucker up. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that could be really, really bad. That's going to be really, really ugly. And, and we, of course, don't have any idea what it's like um, that, uh, that uh, what he was like when he came out. Like, maybe he had rosy, nice skin. But maybe he was really nasty. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been really, really bad. But that truth, he stinketh, is a key part of us understanding the the depth of death in order to truly appreciate resurrection. Let me show you a quote. I'm going to have to skip one, Dan, of uh, Fleming Rutledge from a book uh, called The Undoing of Death. It's an, uh, an excellent, excellent read going through Holy Week. But she says this, there can be no true proclamation of the resurrection until there has been an acknowledgement of the power and the finality of death. When, when Lazarus came out, it was even more shocking because he had been dead for four days because he stunk. And still, resurrection, life, came to be through the words of Jesus. Again, that's going to be for next week. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus, weeks or maybe just a few months after this, is going to himself journey to death. And what Romans 8 says is that in the death of Jesus, God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, different parts of the scriptures are going to phrase that different ways, but if we just take Paul's model in Romans chapter 8, what Paul seems to be saying is Jesus did his job. His job was to die. God did his job. God the Father did his job. His job was to raise him back to life. Anytime you get into Trinitarian theology, it gets a little bit tricky, but I just want to, to, you to think about that as a model for us. How do we encounter God in the midst of death? Like Jesus, our job is to die. And God's the one that raises us from the dead. And that's not just at the end of our mortal life, but it's an invitation into the way that we live. There's a way of living that's releasing our control and being willing to die, to pass through death so that we would come fully into life. Let's go back to the quote from Dr. Dugdale at the beginning. She says, the art of dying is bound up in the art of living. Living as finite creatures allows us to be ready to die. What's that look like? Well, Paul says it looks like in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but the life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm choosing to die so that I would be able to 
have true life. Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft calls death, and specifically the death of Jesus on the cross, the great judo move of God. Now, I don't know a whole lot about judo. I had to do a little bit of research. But my understanding of the way that judo works is you take the strength of your opponent and you turn that strength into the weakness of your opponent. On the cross, Jesus takes the greatest tool that Satan has, death, the most final, the most awful, the most aggravating and uh, anger-producing, even for Jesus himself. Jesus deeply moved, right? Angry about death. It's not supposed to be this way. He takes that and turns it so that out of death would come life. Remember what Jesus said to us, if anyone wants to gain life, he needs to lose it. And if anybody wants to have the fullness of life, he needs to be able to give his life away. He, in fact, he says that um, we need to be crucified daily, take up our cross daily and follow after him. There's an invitation into life that comes through death. Jesus is not saying to us, I will someday be the resurrection and the life. That's true. But he's also saying to us, I currently am the resurrection and the life. There's a pathway into the fullness of life now, and it comes through death. So how do we encounter God in the midst of death? We come willing to give up of ourselves in order to gain life. But remember I said death is never on time. It's always inconvenient. And that's true for you and I. There's never a good time to die to self. But the invitation is always that as we die, as we do our job, God the Father will do his job and bring us back to life. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, makes a, an odd statement. He says that as we come to the communion table, we do that again and again so that we would proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's really odd because this is decades after the resurrection of Jesus. Paul clearly knows about the resurrection. In fact, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just a few chapters later, is uh, the greatest treatise out there on resurrection. So why doesn't he say we proclaim the Lord's life until he comes? I mean, he knows that's coming, right? Why wouldn't he say that? Unless he was saying, as we come back to the table, we find life through death, through his death and through our death that we would come back and proclaim that he has gone before us in death, we don't have to be afraid, that he has gone before us in death and has invited us to die to ourselves so that we would gain fullness of life through him. And so as we come to the communion table, I want to invite you to come that way. Come receiving the life that he offers to us through death, through his death and through our own. If you're serving communion today, I'm going to ask you to come and take the elements around the room. The worship team is also going to come and lead us as we respond. And as they do that, let me just give you a few words. If you're a follower of Jesus, whether this is your home church or um, whether you're somewhere else today for all kinds of different reasons, I, I want to invite you to come and to receive. Uh, this is a proclamation for the body of Christ to come and to receive from him. 
There will be two gluten-free and touch-free stations, both here in the center and uh, in the uh, back center under the clock. So as you go to those stations, you'll receive a gluten-free piece of bread in your hand. You'll take a cup and be able to eat and drink. On the front pews of both of these sections, there's a place to dispose of those cups. All around the outside will be uh, regular stations where you'll take a piece of bread, you'll dip that into the cup, and at all of those stations, you will hear words of grace and blessings spoken over you as you receive. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to say two quick things to you. The first one is I would encourage you not to go to one of these stations. And the simple reason is uh, this is a proclamation of uh, a covenant that we would choose to follow after Jesus with our life. And if you're not in that place, I would just ask you not to make that statement. But I would say you're invited. We're really glad that you're here. And even if today's not the day, we would love to journey with you as you seek to kind of figure that out. There's going to be a lot of movement, and so you don't need to feel weird about the fact that you're not moving. Um, there'll be a lot of people not moving for all kinds of different reasons. Don't worry about it. It's totally fine. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, there'll be some prayers that'll be on the screen, and those prayers may be helpful to you. One of those prayers just says, I'd like to know more. Jesus, would you show me? Like, I, I'm hearing a lot of stuff. I'm trying to put it together. Would you, would you show me? It's a great prayer to pray. The second one says, God, I'm ready to follow you. I don't have all the details figured out, but I hear the invitation, and I, I'm ready to, to step into a relationship with you. And if that's where you are, I would encourage you to, you can pray that prayer or pray like it. It's not magic words. We just wrote it, so it's fine. But I would encourage you, if you pray that prayer, um, you're welcome to go to one of these stations, but I would encourage you to talk to somebody. Uh, we need one another in the journey. This week, somebody's going to need you, and you're going to need them. And so I'd rather connect you now. And so tell somebody that you've made that decision. The last thing is um, if you have an area of your life that you're holding on to, I would encourage you not to go to one of these stations as well. And when I say holding on to, what I mean is like I've died to myself in a whole bunch of areas, but there's this one area where I've said, nope, I'm, I'm holding on to that. I don't mean that you're struggling. We're all struggling in different ways. I mean you've said, I will not. I'm, I'm holding on to this. And if that's where you are, I'd encourage you to take this time rather than going to the stations and going through the process to bring that before the Lord. God, why do I feel like this? Why can't I release this to you? So it's an opportunity for us to respond. Um, as we move, this is an opportunity for us uh, to be a family together. So if you'd like prayer, you're welcome to come to this altar on this side, which would invite others to come and pray with you. And if you'd like to be alone to pray, you're welcome to come to the altar on this side to uh, just be alone with God. We would love to invite you into that as well. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I invite you to come to the table. Jesus, thank you for the proclamation of death that brings life. It's hard for us to get our heads all the way around it. It's such a difficult part of our journey, and yet in the midst of death, you meet us, and in a way that we can't fully explain, you bring life. And so, God, would you do that as we proclaim your death until you return again? May you find us faithful, and may we be um, given new life, even as we die ourselves daily to our own lives so that we would receive your life. And so meet us at the table, we pray by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.